According to the World Health Organization, the single greatest threat to public health worldwide is malnutrition. At certain times in history, specific locations, genocide is the greatest threat. We think often of the six million European Jews who were killed by the Nazis in World War II. What we might not think of so often is the equal number, six million Russians who died of starvation in a shorter period of time, just 20 years prior to that war. War, disease, and natural disasters are perpetual threats to the health and well-being of Earth's populace. But more people are threatened by malnutrition than by any other single malady. Some combination of war, of political corruption, of poor agricultural practices, of famine, drought, plague, some combination deprives people of sufficient nutrients in their diets to live healthy lives. As physical malnutrition is the greatest threat to public health, biblical malnutrition is perhaps the greatest threat to the spiritual health of the local church. Analogous to the threat of war, faithful local churches do face persecution. But analogous to malnutrition, the more widespread danger to the health of the local church is spiritual malnourishment resulting from a deficiency of Bible instruction. Too little or too weak. Simply said, there are far too many local churches where the Bible is not faithfully and accurately taught. As we bring it to home in our own context, Eden Baptist Church places high value on the place of the Bible and its teaching and preaching and the nurture of our spiritual health as a local church. I think most people who come, that is is something very important to them. And we rejoice in the partnership that we have. We treasure God's Word. We love to feed on it for the nourishment of our souls. But it is vital that we work together to uphold that orientation by refreshing our perception of the central role of God's Word in the nourishment of the local church. Last week we considered the role of God's Word and God's Spirit in combination in the formation of the church. So Jesus Christ purchased this gathering today with His blood. He died alone so that we might gather together as the redeemed body of Christ in this waking world. But how are we formed as the church? How do we come together? We know there's a physical sense in which brings us to this location. But how are we brought together as the body of Christ? How are we created to be this body? As we noted last week, the local church is formed as God regenerates those who place their full trust in the message of Jesus Christ, crucified and risen for the forgiveness of sin. This word, this life-giving message in the Bible, combines with the cleansing, life-giving power of God's Spirit to regenerate us. So the words are announced, there is a perception that they are true, and God's Spirit gives life to His people. We are not saved by participation in certain religious rituals. We are not saved by performing good deeds. We are not saved by receiving bite-sized pieces of grace from the church, as if it is a dispenser of salvation. We are saved and formed into local assemblies as the Holy Spirit illumines the message of salvation in Christ and gives to us eternal life. Together in that life, now united in Christ, we come through Word and Spirit to form the church. We turn today then to consider how the church continues to be nourished on God's Word. It is essential that the Word is present by God's Spirit enlivening and bringing us together 
But it is also essential that God's Word continues to feed and to nourish, to sustain and transform and sanctify and make us a healthy congregation as we feed on that truth. I'd like you to turn to the book of Ephesians, if you will. The truth of this book is so pertinent to us as a local church. It reveals the nature of the church. And we will see again... In this familiar passage, Christ's purpose to mature His church and specifically how He designs to do that. We'll not linger long on this very familiar passage in chapter 4 of Ephesians, but find your way to Ephesians 4 and verse 11. Ephesians 4.11 where we read again of the risen and reigning Christ that He gave the apostles the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherd teachers. Shepherds and teachers, I believe, one office. To equip the saints for the works of ministry for building up the body of Christ. Christ gave these teaching offices. He gave as a gift to His church to sustain its life, apostles and prophets. That is, individuals who received God's Word and articulate that Word, such as the book of Ephesians. Then He gave to the church evangelists. These are individuals who particularly and uniquely take that Word, announce it to unbelievers who respond in faith, and are then formed into local churches. Word and Spirit combining, bringing assemblies together. And He gave pastor-teachers to teach God's Word to a local congregation in a continuing ministry. This is Christ's plan. This is Christ's plan in His supreme wisdom to equip the church with such teachers, both ancient and current, who serve the assembly by announcing, explaining, proclaiming, and teaching God's Word to the church. What is the ultimate purpose for this teaching ministry? Where is Christ intending to take this? We notice this in verse 12. To equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather... Speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. What is the ultimate purpose for the teaching ministry that Christ provides for His church? Pretty clear, isn't it? Negatively, to withstand false doctrine. Positively, the members of the church use God's truth to nourish one another in the faith, to come to maturity through the continual intake of this Word. Now let's think about our life. There is a lot of Bible teaching that goes on in this church and for very good reason. But let us never forget that the purpose is to equip all of us to know the truth, to defend the truth, and to speak the truth to one another, to help one another think biblically from God's perspective such that we grow in maturity. To build one another up in the faith. That's Christ's design. Think of this. This is His design. This is what He intends for the relationship that we have together. The risen Christ who pours out His Spirit to regenerate those who respond in saving faith to the Gospel uses... His preached Word in the assembly and in private to purify and to nourish us. We feed on the Word. As Jesus put it, man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. We feed on that truth. And we see this truth clearly articulated in the fifth chapter of Ephesians. Work your way to the end of chapter 5 of Ephesians. 
The practical words of instruction that we find here addressed to Christian husbands and wives is familiar with us, but let's remember it is rooted in the relationship between Christ and His church. So if we set to the side the practical application of this passage to husbands and wives, we see the more foundational revelation of how Jesus relates to us as a local church. Chapter 5, verse 22, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. So Christ is the head of the church, that is, he is our life source, our absolute authority. How does Jesus function as our head? What does Jesus do as the head of the church? Verse 25, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave Himself up for her. For what purpose did Jesus die for the church? Why does He give Himself up for her? What reason did He have in mind when He gave His life to purchase this church? Here it is, verse 26. That He might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the Word. That... In order that, here's why He gave His life, in order that, for this specific purpose, to sanctify us, to purify, to set apart, to consecrate for His use. Having cleansed her, that is, forgiven her of her sins, by the washing of water with the Word. Here again we find the combination of Word and Spirit. God's Word is present. We respond to that message. The Spirit of God washes us clean washed or baptized by the Spirit, which happens as the Word, God's revealed truth about salvation in Christ, is heard and is trusted. Continuing to consider this intended purpose then of Christ's death, we read in verse 23, so that for this purpose He might present the church to Himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. So the maturity that's envisioned in chapter 4, it's not disconnected with what we find here. The maturity that we are to realize as we build one another up in the faith, knowing the truth of God's Word, is in fact Jesus' agenda for this assembly. He cleanses us with the washing of water with the Word. He saves us in order to purify us, to transform us here into a glorious people who reflect the beauty and the purity of His holiness. Are you with me? We fall very far short of that purpose, don't we? Is that what your home looked like this week? Is that what your heart looked like this week? The glorious splendor reflected in us that belongs to God alone? We fall very far short. We are all a project. But isn't it exciting to think of what the risen Christ is doing to change us in that way? This is His intended purpose. If He saved us, He's going to keep the thing going. He's going to continue to progressively nourish and cherish us by the Word. So the teaching of God's Word in the assembly is employed by Jesus to sanctify until we are glorified. That indicates it doesn't end. Until then. The Word that saves is the Word that sanctifies. The Word that brings us to salvation in Christ is the same Word that continues to purify, to conform us to the likeness of Christ. So in theological terms, the book of Ephesians reveals the function of God's Word in the sanctifying nourishment of the local church. I'd like us to turn then to 1 Timothy, where we find this put into practical display. In 1 Timothy, we have the opportunity to see the Apostle Paul working this out with an actual local church. As he speaks to Timothy, who is giving oversight of that church, and has a pastoral role among them as an apostolic delegate. He gives leadership to that assembly, and as he does, Paul instructs him on how the Word is to sanctify the congregation. And notice chapter 3 of 1 Timothy, chapter 3 and verse 14, just to indicate that we are on track here. 
Paul writes, I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how you ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. How you ought to behave in the household of God. Timothy wasn't having trouble getting, he wasn't in trouble in church. He wasn't having a hard time sitting still. It wasn't that how you behave in the household of God, but it's how you order the life of the church. How do you bring this assembly together and how do you encourage them forward? What is your role and your task? I'm coming and I could talk to you about these things, but right now I'm going to write to you about it so that you're instructed to help the church order itself appropriately. With these specific instructions now coming from Paul to Timothy, he addresses the use of Scripture in the assembly. We're picking this out thematically, but I think it's right to do so as we turn to chapter 4 and verse 13. He says this, Until I come, there's a reference to his coming again, so while you occupy in leading that church and directing the order of their life together, until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. The public reading of Scripture. I want you to be devoted to reading Scripture publicly. It is wise and good, and we could argue even necessary, given the privilege that we have, for all of us to be reading the Scriptures privately. Do you read the Bible on your own? Not everybody in history has had access to a copy of God's Word, but do you? Do you read it? Do you take in God's Word privately at home? That's an important consideration. But here he's talking about the reading of Scripture in the assembly. Audibly announcing the Word of God. I don't think that we should quibble over who speaks it as such. Various individuals could be equipped to do that. Indeed, as we did today, the congregation may speak those words. But the Word of God is read. And typically, in our assemblies today, a bit unique, but typically one passage is opened and read uh, from start to finish. It is not wrong to add comments to the reading of Scripture that would steer the assembly to understand it a little bit better. But generally, it is a flow just of the biblical text announced in the assembly, heard by the church. That's what's in view here. I think then, as we respond to this as a church, that when the Bible is read in our assembly, we should recognize that we do this in order to honor a passage such as this. We're doing so to regulate our life and our ministry together according to what the Scriptures teach. We're not just saying this is what works, this is what people like, this is what's expected. But we're saying, as Paul says here to Timothy, devote yourself to public reading of Scripture. We don't do this as a ritual formality. We read Scripture for one reason. Jesus intends to sanctify and purify us as the Scriptures are read out loud in assembly. That simple, but that profound. If we get what's going on, I think it will change the way that we go through Bible reading. There may be some I'm talking to here that as the Scripture passage is announced, as it is read, or as we occasionally perhaps read it together from the screen, when the Word of God is read and announced in assembly, are, do you kind of just say, i got to just endure this? Why do we do this? Or maybe don't think about it at all. And maybe you're even reading the text of Scripture and your mind is wandering somewhere else. I, I think we need to bring to our assembly a knowledge that we read the Word of God because Jesus intends thereby to change us, to purify us. The cleansing, the washing of the Word takes place as it is read in assembly. And I would say if we have too much to do in the service to read the Word of God, then we have too much to do. I would not argue personally that it must be read in a particular way every single time that we ever meet. But there's a pattern here 
And if we have too much to do to read the Scriptures, then we have too much to do. Jesus intends that we do this. Secondly is exhortation. It's a debatable point, but I would understand this to be what we typically refer to as preaching. The exhortation is a biblical address that is calibrated to summon a specific response in the congregation. The exhortation includes explanation of the meaning of the text based on normal, literary, grammatical, historical interpretation. But the exhortation is somewhat distinguished by its ethical appeal. There's a point to what is being said. Much teaching takes place, the instruction in the Word of God. It's sometimes difficult to know where one ends and the other begins, but there's a point to it. There's a summons in it. It summons the church to actively respond to God's counsel in Scripture. Which ironically is kind of the summons of today to respond actively to the counsels in Scripture as we think of the place of the Word in our life. That's the exhortation. Calling the church to know, to see, to learn, but to do what it knows, ultimately. Teaching, thirdly, is the, the, the content again is the Word of God. So, so Timothy's to devote himself to reading the Scriptures publicly, to exhorting, calling the church to respond to the truth of God's Word, to teach. Teaching aims to unfold the Bible's structure and storyline, how the Old Testament and New Testament Scriptures are integrated and how they point to Christ. It develops biblical theological themes. It demonstrates how the Bible is constructed and the like. So as we're reading the Bible and as we're being challenged to respond to Scripture, we need to know certain ideas about it, not just simply read it, but to learn its theology. So in the church, we have at 9.15 on Sunday mornings, we could point to other times such as Wednesday nights, but let's just consider 9.15 on Sunday mornings, we have what we refer to as Bible classes. In those Bible classes, we gather to do 1 Timothy 4.13. I've heard people say from time to time, it doesn't matter if you have those or not, they're not in the Bible, Sunday school's not in the Bible, no it's not. But the teaching of Scripture is. And it is to be a normative part of our life in some way that is somewhat distinct from exhortation to be involved in teaching and hearing God's Word and learning God's Word in that context. So those classes are designed to help us and they're dedicated to developing the church's grasp of theology and salvation historical themes that we might rightly read the Scriptures and know when the truth is being announced in the exhortation. At times the emphasis falls on the practical application of biblical truth to a particular area of life, and that is good and right. But I would say this, if you do not participate in this ministry you are choosing to look at 1 Timothy 4.13 and say, I don't need one of those three. If you're not attending Bible class and learning in some way, and I realize some people cannot, and that's between you and God, but if you're simply saying, I don't need to go to that, it doesn't really light my fire, and I don't want to get up that early in the morning, or I just don't find that I connect with it, I would encourage you strongly to submit to 1 Timothy 4.13. And if it is not in that context, I realize there's different situations with different people. But if you're just choosing not to be part of that, you're choosing to say, this aspect of teaching, I can do without that. Remember that this is Christ's word to how he, as to how He intends to sanctify His people. He intends for there to be reading, exhortation, and teaching. He stresses this at larger, at greater detail in, in the second epistle, 2 Timothy. I invite you there, chapter 4. 2 Timothy chapter 4. We'll start at the end of chapter 3. 2 Timothy chapter 3 at the end, verse 16, and we'll move into chapter 4 just briefly. But 
he says there, Paul writing to Timothy, all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Here we're not talking about formal aspects of the worship of the church, but rather the effect of Scripture, what it does. It is breathed out by God. It is a product of the Lord Himself, and including those who wrote the Scriptures, fully using their mind, fully engaged. But it is breathed out by God, and it is profitable to teach us the truth. To reprove us. To let us know that there's things that are wrong in our life that need to change. To correct it. To get it on the right track. And to train us in righteous living. Scripture is good for all of that. In fact, so that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. This speaks to us here of the sufficiency of Scripture. We have here in the Word of God everything that we need to grow in godliness and in faithfulness before the Lord. We don't need to add to it. But let me point back to what 4.13 of the first epistle where he says of Timothy, you are to devote yourself to the reading to the exhortation and to the teaching of these God-expired words. Now, when we find that word devote yourself in the imperative mode is here, the Greek word means to devote, to apply oneself to something, to occupy oneself with a task. So it means that God intends at least for the shepherds of the church to devote time and energy to the teaching, preaching, and reading of Scripture in assembly. This God-inspired word. Mount says Timothy is to immerse himself in the biblical text, to encourage people to follow the text, and to teach its doctrines. Timothy's lifestyle is to be characterized as a devotion to and an immersion in the biblical text. And so we are to be a word-oriented community. We're to be a people of the book without apology or complaint. And the motivation is that Jesus Christ uses the text of God's Word to change us. To to nurture us into the people that He wants us to be. In fact, the people He saved us to become. So, In this second epistle then, as Paul nears his death, and as he considers this last call upon Timothy, he speaks to him about this breathed out Word and its sufficiency for the life of the church, to sustain that life. As one has put it, to read the Bible then is to hear God speak. And this Word is wholly sufficient as we see here. That is, it includes everything that we need to walk in faithfulness before the Lord. It is appropriate to read resources that help us understand the Bible better. It is appropriate to illustrate the truth of Scripture, to demonstrate it, to apply it. But it is never appropriate appropriate for us to supplement it as if it's incomplete. The Bible does not need therapeutic self-help insights to make it effective. Everything that we need is here. We do not need to excuse it away or avoid its countercultural teachings. We need this book. We need all of it. And we need it straight up. A point clearly now reflected in what Paul says next. And so, does it not fit? I charge you, chapter 4, verse 1 of 2 Timothy, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by His appearing and His kingdom, preach the Word. with keen awareness of the supervising oversight of the risen Savior, with keen awareness that Christ will serve as final and sovereign judge, Paul exhorts Timothy to proclaim the truth of God. To say what the Bible says in the congregation. Timothy is not to do this in a disinterested or dispassionate manner. But verse 2, he's to be ready in season and out of season to reprove, rebuke, exhort with complete patience and teaching. In the ancient world, heralds traveled from place to place announcing the king's will. In like manner, pastors are to decisively proclaim this is what the king of heaven says. 
And with that word, he is to reprove. That is to demonstrate from Scripture how our lives are out of sync with God's counsel. And he is to rebuke sinners for their sin. And he is to exhort, meaning he is to call people to a decisive response and to urge and admonish them to act righteously. And he is to do so with patient endurance. He's not to throw his hands up and walk away when they don't listen. He's not to give up in despair. He's not to grow bored. He's not to simply endure it as his job and his task. But he's to be ready in season and out of season, laboring that Christ would be formed in his people through the proclamation of his word. And let me warn you, Paul says, verse 3, the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and they will wander off into myths. They'll wander off and they'll chase ideas that are curious and interesting and by doing so, they will avoid the call of God's truth to our lives. That's going to happen. In contrast to that, verse 5, always be sober. You, in contrast, be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. Your ministry is to devote yourself to the reading, the exhortation, and to the teaching of Scriptures. To preach the Word in season and out of season. To continue to saturate God's people in the truth of the Word. Fulfill your ministry. The sermon is not Scripture. He's not saying that. Although it should contain Scripture. But the sermon is a word from God in as far as it adequately and accurately conveys God's wisdom and will. So Timothy is not called here to preach his own opinions. He's not here to preach what the audience will find appealing. He's not to preach here only to the lost. He's to preach all that God has said. The Holy Spirit knew what He was doing when He inspired the text of Scripture. And we can trust Him to tell us what we need to know. And Jesus knew exactly what He was doing when He designed the reading, teaching, and preaching of God's Word to nourish the souls of His people. And so, as we respond, these are truths we know well. This is our orientation as a church, but it's important that we continue to sink deep roots into it and that we continue to pass this on from generation to generation to know the importance of the Word in the life of the church. We don't want to be a malnourished church. We want to be a well-fed church that sees how Scripture is put together, what God's call is upon our life, and to continue to be purified by thinking God's thoughts, to be people of the book. So let me offer five prayers. I won't pray them, but just five prayers in written text for our church. For the culture of Eden Baptist Church going forward, number one, may God enable us to grow in our ability to detect sound biblical teaching. I pray that He'll nurture us that way, that we'll be able to know what sound teaching is. We'll be able to discern what is accurate, faithful, biblical instruction. And that faithful Bible teaching persistently and persuasively proclaims what God indeed has said. We'll understand the importance of grammatical study and historical study, and literary analysis, that we are able to demonstrate to the assembly what the Bible actually means. And as we learn from Jesus' example, such teaching includes illustration. Consider the lilies of the field. It includes application. It includes conviction and comfort and motivation and correction. There were two brothers. And one got lost. And in the end, we found that the one that was not lost was really lost. Story, illustration, application, conviction. Jesus teaches us this. We are to get the gist of a passage or doctrine then to explain and defend and commend it. This 
is sound biblical teaching. And I would say that for all who teach the Bible in this congregation, I would say that one goal that we could just have practically would be, and I, I try to think of this once in a while, let's take Wednesday night as uh, men are working through 1 Corinthians and as they're leading the, the, the assembly through that book and we're praying about it as we take chunks of 1 Corinthians, I would hope that what is taught in assembly, and I think is a goal we should aim at, is that the Apostle Paul is sitting in row three and he's shaking his head yes. Yeah, that's what I meant. That's exactly what I was saying to the Corinthians. Yeah, that's on track with what I'm... Yeah, and I see that. Yes, that's indeed how that text applies to this church. Now, you have a weird world here, Paul would say to us. I don't understand it. I don't get how it works. But as I look at you people sitting in this age, this, age, this situation, and I'm looking, thinking back, and yeah, you got it. You're on track. Now, in 1 Corinthians, we, we ran into a problem last week. Dr. Pratt brought up, we don't have meat sacrificed to idols and people asking us if it's okay if we eat it. So as Paul's sitting in the third row and he's hearing us talk about that, he's saying, yeah, I don't see any parallel particularly with that, but the way that it's applied to Eden Baptist Church, we would want the Apostle Paul to say, yes, that's in line with what I was saying. You're getting the picture. Communion, the glory of Christ, our relationship with Him, that's what I was talking about. And you're applying that to your church. We should also know as we teach the Word of God that the sting of rebuke is a necessary component of nutritious preaching. True preaching is a, is a surgery. It's not a massage. It is supposed to hurt sometimes, though always to heal. Alcibiades of Athens said of Socrates, Socrates, I hate you, because every time I meet you, you can make me see what I am. Well, as Bible believers, we should be able to say of the Lord Jesus Christ and His Word, I love you because you help me see who I am. But unlike Socrates, you do not simply look down on me in condescension. You help me change. You correct me. You rebuke me. You instruct me. I get my feelings hurt sometimes in sermons. And I look at the Word of God and say, I don't add up to that, and I get challenged because sometimes I don't maybe didn't understand the passage as I should. But we know that's all part of it. God uses it to reprove, to correct, and to instruct. But when God is the one exposing you for who you are, it's not hateful, it's transformational. May God enable us to grow in our ability to detect sound biblical teaching. Secondly, somewhat faster, may God grant us the discipline to benefit from nutritious biblical content. Did you hear what Paul said to Timothy of the audience? People will not endure sound teaching. This is going to be a challenge. They're not going to like it. They're going to have to come with a sense of discipline to endure it. In other words, there's an easier path. Hearing God's Word is a demanding enterprise that requires discipline. We must come keen to hear God's message to us as an assembly. And to the teachers, he says, devote yourself to the Word in season and out of season with great patience. 2 Timothy 4. It's hard work to teach God's Word. It's hard work to teach any subject with accuracy, clarity, and relevance. And to bridge distinct peoples in different situations and to make it clear and make it work. But the motivation needs to be that the power of the Word, the power of the word to transform and Christ's design that the church will grow through that Word. This should motivate us as teachers to continue to devote ourselves to this discipline task calling upon all of us as we hear the Word to attend it with discipline. Thirdly, may God continue to convince us that, and I borrow the words from Peter Adam, to love God is to love His words. To love God is to love His words. There are no renowned 
uber-gifted teachers in this church. But our task is not to critique preachers. It is to listen for God's message and to learn His truth. And if you are bored with the teaching ministry of this church, the cause is probably not the weakness of teachers and preachers, as weak as we are. The cause is a lack of love for God in your heart. Bible teachers have a responsibility to be engaging, to develop their skills to teach, but we should all be driven by the truth that to love God is to love His Word. And where His Word is read, and where it is proclaimed, and where it is taught in faithfulness, however well, whatever foibles there may be along the way, I love God's Word because I love God. May God bring us with that spirit. Preachers and teachers can get in the way, but the greatest cause of biblical malnourishment is the failure of listeners to digest God's Word as God's Word. Number four, may God deliver us from the malnutrition that results from failing to digest God's Word. Go right on that point and say that itself is a problem. There are numerous ways to fail to digest Scripture. Again, I draw from Peter Adam here, hearing God's Word, his book. As he lists out, I think, that, I think it's a good starting point. I haven't thought about it overly much, but I would put it out there for you as you come to hear Scripture taught in the assembly. There are ways that the nutrition can pass right through us. And we really don't feed on it and don't benefit from it. He identifies a number of people, and I've used my own words, so don't blame him for these, but the first is those who are oriented to emotion. That is, they are people who come to attend God's Word in the church looking for a buzz. They tend to be up and down all of the time, but what they want is to feel the Word in their hearts with no particular interest in thinking hard about the meaning of the Bible. They think God is present whenever they feel that He is present. And so it's really not so much how biblical the teaching is, it's far more how it's presented and do I get the buzz. These are people who can often miss the truth of God's Word. Second category are those who come looking with mere intellectual curiosity. They love study. They, they probably take notes. They probably have a notebook of some sort. They, they love to put things together and they love to hear what this person thinks and what that person thinks and always coming to learn more facts about the Bible and it doesn't seem that there's really ever a mirror in that notebook where they put together what is God's Word saying to me. And I'm learning facts about the Bible, and I like the fact that this church takes the Bible seriously, and, I'm, and I'm, I'm learning and growing in my understanding of it, but is it changing you, or is it simply intellectual curiosity? The third is the mother hen. That's my words. But that's the one who always receives the word as intended for others. Oh, I wish that person had heard this sermon. I can't wait to take that truth and help this person see that, what they need to get. Oh, that, that was perfect for so-and-so. But again, there's never a mirror in it. They're hovering over everybody else and how everyone else needs to hear the Word, but they're not hearing it. And it's malnutrition because it's sloughed off. Number five, or four rather, are those who are simply are obsessed with relevance. Those who demand immediate relevance and practicality of the message is dismissed as lacking benefit. I don't care about the Assyrian Empire. I don't care about the Babylonian Empire. What do I care about the Exodus? What has it got to do with me? These are facts. These are things that happened in the past. But what does it have to do with me? Well, a self-oriented culture can get stuck in that and we can be receiving words of truth that would indeed sanctify us, but we're sloughing them off. We're wasting them because we don't see the immediate application. There are numerous people through the years that I've met in this context of this church who have learned truths from God's Word that they didn't need for years. But when they needed it, they really needed it. We don't always know what we're gaining when we read about the Assyrian Empire. 
And I realize we can just become academic and lose the whole point. We need to strive to be relevant. But there's relevance idolatry that's going on. And number five are the debaters. This is a person who loves to disagree with what has been said and to contradict or express a different perspective. It's like they just live to be disagreeable. And every sermon, every teaching, it's all about how I differ with that. I think a little differently on this. I don't think you have the right point here. And this an argumentativeness, they just love the fight. But in all of these ways, I think you can see illustrated that it, the, the nutrition of God's Word is just flushed out. It's not inculcated. It's not digested. And so what happens is we have people coming to hear the Word of God who are anemic, and there are bones that are showing through the skin because nothing's staying in. They're malnourished. And so let me say for prayer number five, may God continue to form our culture as an assembly around the Word. There is great value in hearing Scripture read and taught in the church, and it takes a cooperative effort on our part as hearers and as church members to see the opportunity to know God through His Word, to be transformed by His Word, to not come as critics of it, to be coming with bored endurance, but to continue to persevere in our knowledge of Scripture, to memorize it together as an assembly, to take the memory challenge that is before us. You don't have to take it. It's not biblical. But if you're, you better be doing something better if you're just going to throw it aside. But to take the memory challenge that we have each week as a church and to commit that text to memory, to think and feed on the Word of God and to rejoice to announce it with His people when we recite it. To read the Bible privately and in family devotion is also very critical. And let me finish too by saying it is also important that you pray for the teachers of this church. In our prayer bulletins on Wednesday evenings, there is uh, typically the name of someone who's teaching Scripture in this church. I would encourage you, in light of what we have considered here today, to look at that as a significant project of prayer. To pray for that teacher that there would be a faithfulness in study, an accuracy in declaring the word of truth, a love for God's people, a faithfulness that's there. Pray for them. Pray for those who minister to the entire congregation, such as the sermon here today. We need prayer. We need God to steer us clear from false ideas and taking the church in a wrong direction. We need clarity to see what God's Word truly is saying. We need to understand how it applies. We need to understand how to bridge the gap between some very diverse people. Pray faithfully for those who proclaim the Word and you will join in on the fruits of those labors. And be careful as you pray. Because we can easily pray for the preacher to say what we want to hear. Well, I haven't heard this theme for a while. Dear God, please move the preacher to say something about it which then usually elicits some sort of great amen or something if it actually happens. Don't pray like that. Ask God to do what He wants to do in your life through the preaching of the Word. That's how I need to pray when I'm not speaking. What will God do through His Word in my life? I should come with anticipation. I should come with a sense of fulfillment and involvement rather in this process. May it be a pervasive culture that our church is committed to the teaching and the proclamation of God's Word. I've spent a lot of time here in application because we're talking about the Word of God. But I pray and my hope is that there will be a culture of appreciation and a growth in this church as we are nourished in, in the Scriptures.
You've seen those pictures, certainly, of children malnourished in some part of the world, and they're horrifying pictures to view. And there is a problem there that is larger than anything than any, anyone could solve. But I think we rightly, compassionately think about those who are in such a situation. And may that never be the case in our church where we are not malnourished because we are sloughing off the truth or because the truth of God's Word is no longer being it's no longer central in our congregation. We've got to work to maintain that together as a church. So let's do that. And by God's grace, He will change us. I know that I'm probably bent, not at the beginning of my life, but somewhere down the road, bent as a student. I love study. I love to read. I wasn't always like that. But God changed me and He's used me and done things in my life to love the study of God's Word. But I honestly can say that in my ministry of the Word and the ministry of all who teach here, this is not simply about study. It's about a conviction that God will use His Word to feed His people. And when I look at some of those pictures of malnourished children, I think sometimes of how I would love to take one of those children and just bring them back to health. Can't eat much at first, but in little spoonful size feedings, bringing that person to health. I have no interest to see a church grow malnourished. Our teachers have no interest, and you have no interest in that. And so it is my conviction and belief that the Word of God is to be pervasive in our assembly because it is through that Word that people grow. That's how we're nourished. That's how we don't become malnourished. So let's come as an assembly and as a culture that embraces God's truth and its presence in our life. And let's look at it not as ritual, not as an obligation that we go through, but rather to see it for what it is, the transforming power of God's Word in our lives. Will you join me in that? Let's go before the Lord in prayer and ask His aid. Father, is this Word grows increasingly countercultural. We realize we are challenged by false teaching to adjust it. We are challenged by the culture of this world to change our ways and that there will always be an attack on the true proclamation of Your Word. But I pray that You will sustain and uphold this congregation and I pray that You would feed it. That we would know that we live not by bread alone, but by the words that proceed from the mouth of the Lord. And I pray that we would then rejoice to know Your truth, to be familiar with Your book, to come to know it better, and to know that thereby Word and Spirit combine to transform. I praise You for those who come with a keen interest to be fed on the truth of Scripture. And I pray in the days ahead that we will grow in our capacities to accurately teach and faithfully nurture God's people on God's Word. And I pray for each one that's here that they would take to heart the need that they have personally to feed on Your truth. May we see the Bible for what it truly is. And I pray for anyone who does not know Christ as Savior that they would come to see the Word and the Spirit combine and know that the message of Jesus crucified and risen will lead them to a place of uniting with Him to receive His righteousness and His saving grace. And I pray that You bring that about today. We lay these requests at Your feet asking that You will find us faithful and nurture us in our obedience in the days ahead. Through Christ we pray. Amen.